What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, we're going to be interviewing Eric Adol and Ethan Vanderein. Now, Eric and Ethan did the sound design for A Quiet Place. And it was such a fantastic film for sound. So if you haven't seen A Quiet Place and you can find it in a rep cinema or you have a really good theater, definitely check it out in the best sound room you can find. Now, one thing I will give you a heads up with, the recording was done over Skype. So there are a few little pops in here and there. And Carly did her best to get them out. But some of them were on important words that we couldn't just cut out or easily replace. So I apologize for that. But with all that said, I want to get into what Eric and Ethan had to say about creating the sounds of the monsters and the cochlear implants and the lack of sound in this film. So here's my interview with Eric and Ethan. This is Eric Adol, and this is Ethan Vanderein. Great. My first question is going to be, in my research, it appears that the sound was written into the script. So I was wondering... How did this help you with your creative process and find your particular sounds for the various elements of the film? Yeah, no, that's true. Ethan and I got a phone call from one of the producers, Andrew Form, and he said, I've got this script I want you to read. Sound is the most important character in this film. And we thought, okay, that's a strong pitch. Sure, whatever. <laughs> and we read the script and it was true. Sound was baked into the DNA of this script. And after reading it, we chatted with each other like, oh my gosh, this is a sound designer's dream. And shortly after that, we met with John Krasinski, who was basically meeting us before he had even hired a picture editor or hired a music composer. And before we could say anything, he said, this is a sound designer's dream. <laughs> and, uh, and we're like, oh, great, awesome. He gets it. <laughs> He's on board. I mean, in the script, basically, you know, we have a principal character who is deaf, Regan, the daughter, who's played by Millicent Simmons, who in real life is deaf. We have this family who has to understand sound to survive, going to extraordinary lengths to adapt using sound where you know pouring sand paths in the forest so they're not stepping on twigs and making noise painting floorboards that are safe to step on and won't creak of course using sign language to communicate so you know reading the script we, we realized okay sound is really critical here and one of our biggest challenges is aside from creating the creatures um, and those kind of things was figuring out how to really focus the sound of the film and and maintain a logic to the film where, you know, if a sound was going to be made, another larger sound has to be around it to mask it. You know, there's one of the few scenes in a film where, where characters are talking is next to a waterfall. Those kind of logical relationships, you know, we realized that would be one of our biggest challenges as well. As you mentioned, sound played such an important role. It was a character in the film, essentially. So what was your relationship like with Christopher, the editor? Because when I talked to him, he, you know, he initially started cutting without the sound. Yeah. But I'm wondering what the back and forth was like, especially since in test screenings, you kind of need the sound for, for feedback from the audience. Yeah. That's true. I mean, that said, there wasn't a ton of test screenings um, because there were no 
no visual effects either until late in the game. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what Eric's saying is true. There really was only one sort of screening of the movie, and it didn't go very well because in one of the scenes where the creature's on screen, uh, what we saw was John Krasinski in a neon green leotard acting out the <laughs> creature's movements, and people in the audience just started laughing. And that's not ultimately, of course, the reaction that you want to get in that moment. So we weren't able to test screen the movie. And that made it actually kind of interesting working on the movie because it meant that we really just had to follow our gut instincts. And in this film, of course, we were taking some pretty bold risks in terms of how quiet we made certain things in terms of there being moments where we actually went to complete silence and that's really not something that's done in you know most studio films these days or i should say any films these days and eric and i would look at each other and be like oh we think this is cool we feel like this is really working but well you know audiences today be able to go with this and not only that but, but will they be quiet enough for it to work because to get as as quiet in some of these scenes as we did requires that audiences will actually be into it enough to be quiet. And we didn't, you know, the whole time we were making the film because we weren't able to screen it, we we really didn't know if it was going to work. And it wasn't until the premiere at South by Southwest Film Festival where there was dead quiet in this huge audience through the whole screening. And then at the very end of the movie, after Emily Blunt's character cocks that shotgun and we cut to black and the whole theater, you know, erupted into thunderous applause. You know, they loved the movie. It wasn't really until that moment that we all knew that, yeah, this 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 worked. The experiment worked. <laughs> but really, you know, what we were trying to do was create an immersive experience where we could really suck the audience into the drama on screen and make it an interactive experience in a way where you felt connected to these characters and you feel you would feel the love that they have for each other and feel the stakes what was at play along with them and working with Chris was you know really it was really critical for that process Chris and his team were editing in New York and we're in LA, so obviously technology helped a lot with that long distance relationship. You know, the way we work is day one of sound design, we start sending stems to uh, the picture editor to, to carry in the Avid. That way sound can evolve with the picture and what you want is to have an alchemy with sound and picture. You know, the old way of doing it, you know, back in the day where sound, you know, you cut your picture and then you do the, your sound afterwards wouldn't have worked for a film like this. The sound really needed to inform Chris's work and he was incredible to collaborate with in that way. So our process was basically, you know, we started with some of the key sound design scenes that were kind of the Rubik's puzzles we had to crack first, like the opening of the film up to the Trestle Bridge attack the um, first cornfield encounter Regan has with the creature where, you know, without dialogue or exposition, we have to describe 
her sonic point of view, which John called her envelope. We have to describe the creature's sonic point of view, and we also have to explain through sound that there's some kind of interference. You know, we have to establish this plot point where there's interference between the creature somehow with her cochlear implant, which, you know, sets up a key story point that leads to the finale. So once we did our pass on those sequences, we'd send our stems to Chris right away to get into the Avid. And then we'd also post them on pics for John Krasinski and the producers so they could see it very quickly and then quickly get back to us with any feedback. So it was kind of a daily process of designing, working on scenes, getting them over to Chris, getting them to the filmmakers, and then just continuing to evolve the track. And what was kind of cool, and which is not actually that common, was the sound would affect Chris's picture edit. There's places where he's like, oh, we need more time, more heads on this VFX shot so we can hear the audience perspective before the creature opens its ears, so then we can hear the creature's heightened sonic perception, and then we need to extend the tail so then we can transition into the feedback sound. And, you know, there's a number of other scenes when Emily's character, Evelyn, is about to give birth, and she sets off an egg timer as a diversion, a sonic diversion. Um, It was the sound that led Chris to structure the cut the way he did with the egg timer, and all of those timings wouldn't have been possible without sound. So I think it was really cool how, how Chris worked first with emotion, working without sound, and then taking it into the next gear when we came aboard and embracing the sound and letting sound and picture evolve together, which is the ideal. Just one other thing to note is I think the the process that Eric just is describing, I think one really cool thing that it demonstrates is how we're able to collaborate remotely from, you know, distant places in a very close way. I mean, I feel like it was a very tight collaboration in terms of uh, the back and forth and the way that we were able to sort of have this evolution happening parallel and having the sound helping to inform the picture cut and vice versa, you know, very quickly and do all that from uh, remote locations, us being based in Los Angeles and Chris being based in New York. And to have that all work as fluidly as it did is, I think, a real testament to, you know, how far things have come with digital technology. Now, you guys said like a ton of stuff I would love to unpack. (laughs) One of them is you talked about how the creatures react to the cochlear implant. And I'm wondering how you guys... I guess, figured out or came up with the sound for that device and how it would react with the the monsters? Yeah, it's a tricky sound because, you know, it has to feel like it could be painful. (laughs) So it's always a challenging thing when you want to give, make the audience a little bit uncomfortable and on edge, but you don't want it to be painful. (laughs) So on a conceptual level, that was kind of our, you know, okay, how do we need to pull that off somehow? And the way we actually did it was one of the tools that we use in design is a binaural microphone. A lot of different types of microphones for different types of things, but the binaural microphone is really useful for creating a inside-your-head kind of feeling. And it's a Neumann KU100 microphone, which is basically in the shape of a human head. And we call the microphone Fritz. 
because uh, it's a German manufacturer. So the ears on this head are shaped like human ears, and inside the ear canals are the microphone elements. And so what we did was we took headphones that are in the shape of Regan's cochlear implant, and we created a feedback loop. So we took the microphone sound coming through the ears, fed that into the headphone feed, and put those headphones into the microphone, and then just manipulated them with a little bit of distance and movement and excited the feedback loop using just different little nudges. And then that was kind of our raw material. And then we took that and we could kind of make it a little bit more 8-bit, you know, using like certain plugins, and we could give it a little bit of a pattern with the tremolation and massage it. But the raw ingredient was a feedback loop made with a binaural head microphone. Wow. I was very interested in how you guys did that. It was it was a pretty impressive sound. I guess my other question from that is what was your dialogue like with John? Because you mentioned that the crowd needed to be, I guess, involved in the sound in some way. So what was your dialogue with John initially to sort of figure out how he wanted it to sound and then working with him and, and Chris to get that engaging sound? Yeah, John was deep in the trenches with us, and he gave us like a lot of, at first, very broad direction, like the creatures have to be terrifying, how quiet can we get, How, what are the little details we can really focus on, and make little sounds into big sounds because of that. Those discussions in that direction started on day one with John. And of course, like I mentioned, we'd be feeding him our first passes and on scenes and then continue to evolve them together. Um, You know, we're very, very focused on how the audience would engage with what we were doing. Our goal, our shared goal was to put the audience in the shoes of the characters to make it not only an immersive cinematic experience, but an interactive cinematic experience. And one of the key concepts for creating that alchemy that we came up with really early in the process was creating these sonic envelopes for, well, for a lot of the characters and the creatures too, but in particular, Regan. Regan's character is deaf in the script. Millicent Simmons, who plays her, is deaf in real life. And John Krasinski casting her, he said it was non-negotiable that he cast a, a, a deaf actress for the role. So we created these sonic points of view for her that John wound up calling her sonic envelopes. And when her cochlear implant is turned on, the sound is kind of like a low hum, a low rumble with a little bit of a pulse, like a heartbeat internally. When her cochlear implant is turned off, we go to complete digital silence, which I think is the only time that I have ever taken an entire movie soundtrack to digital zero. Um, There's something shocking about that, even though it seems like it's so simple, it just hasn't been done. (laughs) But what's cool about that is it does pull the audience into the experience. I think there's a psychoacoustic effect where you've got a lot, when you've got a lot of sound, when you've got a ton of music, an audience kind of, it gets lulled and kind of zone out a little bit, get comfortable that's sort of the conventional way of doing sound for a movie <laughs> is always having energy, something going on. And when you pull that rug out from under the audience, when you 
force them to like listen and they're afraid to eat their popcorn and they're holding their breath, like listening very carefully. It makes them an active participant in, in the film and in the shoes of the characters. And to me, that's one of the kind of magical things about sound that it's able to work on in such a powerful way, but also in, in a very subconscious way. And, you know, so John was deeply involved with all of those experiments and we knew that we were doing something kind of pretty unique and risky and we weren't really sure if, you know, it was working awesome for us, but we were until the very end wondering how is the, how our audience is going to react to this? Are they going to be on board? Are they going to get it? And we didn't really know until we premiered the movie at South by Southwest Film Festival and got its standing ovation. And, and for us, it was like, okay, the, you know, this, risky experiment work we're you know vindication <laughs> you know all of us were on that ship together john uh, and especially we should mention the producers andrew form and brad fuller um we couldn't have had more supportive and courageous producers um behind us you know this concept easily could have gotten messed up and dumbed down and made conventional and Everybody involved wanted to do something special. So I think we're really grateful to have been given that opportunity. Now, we've talked about removing the sound, but there's also like a heavy reliance on the ambiences in this film. And I'm wondering, what were some of your challenges uh, when creating the sound for this film when it came to creating a sparse environment? What were some of the challenges you faced? Well, I mean, part of the thing is every sound we put into the film, there was thought that went into every sound in terms of how does this support the logic and the rules of this universe that we're setting up. So with ambiences, they tended to be very flat in a way. For instance, we didn't put any single crickets in the movie or any single birds. Unless the crows were in the air. Yeah, yeah. there's one time when we hear bird cries but it's yeah it's the crows who are in the air where of course the creatures can't get to but the, the idea being that any single sound that stands out from the background sounds would be killed so there's a lot of subtle things that we do in the ambiences that we built that are all about reinforcing the logic uh the sonic logic of this universe that we're creating by the same token, there's no there's no doors in the film, so you know and the ambiences cloak the sounds in the scene. So characters, we can hear their feet walking through the sand pads, but if there were no if we had really quiet ambiences there, it wouldn't make any sense logically. Like the sound of the wind through the trees has to be loud enough that you would believe that you wouldn't hear those feet, because as the script pointed out and the logic of the film dictates. A sound is only okay if there's a louder sound around it. And the father describes this in one of the few scenes where he where there's dialogue to his son next to a waterfall, which can mask sonically mask and cloak the sound of their talking. So those ambiences define what sounds are survivable. Yeah, and and conversely, the way we use ambiences within the house help to describe the work that the family has done to make the deeper part of the house more soundproof. 
So as we descend into the house, the ambiences, which are really just various shades of room tones, become quieter and quieter until when we get down into the safe room that they've soundproofed with old newspapers glued to the wall. When we get down into the safe room, there's actually zero room tone at all. So the only sounds that we hear down there are the are the breaths and you know gentle um, movements of our characters. Uh, there is no, zero ambience, and that's really the only place in the film where there is zero ambience. Aside from Millie's aside uh, from POV Millie's when... POV when she has her cochlear implant turned off. So there's a lot of subtle things that we do with all the ambiences to help basically describe you know how this world is operating and and what our characters are doing to be able to survive within it now i have two more questions and my first question is how did you guys go about designing the sort of clicks and pops of the monsters yeah so the creatures that was another big challenge of the film creating the sound of the creatures and you know our direction from John was, well, they have to be terrifying. <laughs> so, and as we worked, we realized that when it comes to sounds of creatures, more is not more. We found that when we were sparser with them is actually more terrifying. It's kind of the Spielberg jogs approach. So we had to be really specific about where we had them vocalize and how. And when they're in a searching mode, they have these clicking sounds. And because the creatures are essentially blind, we figured they would use sound to navigate through their environment using echolocation. So we kind of based those clicking noises off of real world analogs like dolphin clicks who use sonar, beluga whales, you know, bats are blind and they use sonar. And at first we kind of tried some of those real world recordings for the creatures clicks, but they were a little too um, relatable. We wanted to have an alien kind of quality to give a more unsettling feel to these creatures. So it was really through just random brainstorming that we came upon our stun gun and did some high resolution recordings with our stun gun, which is in real time, it sounds like a zipping kind of electrical crackle sound but slowed down sounds like echolocation clicks. And what we also liked about the stun gun was that there was an electrical component to these creatures. They're able to interfere with electronics and Regan's cochlear implant interference. So it felt appropriate to use kind of a stun gun with this electrical component. And the, and the way we recorded that was not shooting it into one of our interns, um, <laughs> obviously. We used something that could kind of reproduce skin, which was um, grapes, which have kind of a wet, fleshy interior and a thin skin. So it's able to conduct electricity in, in the right way to get the right kind of sound. Very interesting. I have my last question, and I ask everyone this when I interview them, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? <laughs> Hmm. The first thing that came to mind was Evil Dead, but I can come up with a better answer. <laughs> That's a good one. 
first thing that comes to my mind, but it, it's not a film, but is Game of Thrones. Although maybe I really don't need to feel guilty about that. It's cinema, really. <laughs> well, well, we can accept those. Yeah, we're not really guilty about anything, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we embrace it. I also wanted to say before you go, I love monster movies, so I was excited because you guys had also worked on the Godzillas. I love those films. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, not too long ago, we finished Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So a few more months and we'll be out. Well, I look forward to it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was nice to talk with you. So that was my interview with Eric and Ethan. I'd like to thank them for allowing me to interview them. I'd also like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.